Okay, we're continuing together our study of the New Covenant, and we looked previously at the content and the blessings of the New Covenant, and uh, now we're looking more at the implementation of the New Covenant in relationship to uh, the covenant community. Anytime God forms a covenant, uh, he forms it with another party, and that party or parties... Uh, are those who make up the community of people through whom God deals with according to the terms of that particular covenant. And so if it's the Noahic covenant, uh, it was made with all of humanity and all of the animals. And that's the covenant community that the Noahic covenant applies to. And then, of course, the Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and the community that descended from him. Um, uh, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, and of course, with them, God made the old covenant. And so we have uh, the descendants of Abraham as being the covenant community under the Abrahamic covenant, and that covenant community was governed by the old covenant. And now we have the new covenant, and of course, it too has a community of people attached to it that are ordered according to it and to whom its terms apply. And those people are all of those who are saved by and through faith in Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> we uh, looked at this covenant community um, in light of uh, two dimensions that it possesses. Um, the new covenant community is the universal church. It's made up of all people uh, who are saved and who uh, have believed in Jesus Christ and been born again. And so the recipients of the new covenant and the new covenant blessings are believers. And the door into the universal church is simply faith in Jesus Christ. And so we saw from Ephesians chapter 2 that when God saves someone as an individual, verses 1 to 10, he immediately connects them with a covenant community verses 11 through, I believe it's 24 to the end of the chapter in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we see that um, uh, before they were um, without God and without hope and they were outside uh, the covenants of promise. Uh, but now those who are once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. And they're made citizens, they're made family, they're made into a temple. All of those things speaking of their corporate identity. And then we looked at the fact that this universal church finds its manifestation in uh, individual local churches. And so we looked at passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Acts 20, 28, um, in which we saw that the local church is the vehicle for the present fulfillment of the new covenant promises and blessings on earth. And so it's the church, the local church, that is the visible manifestation of the covenant community. It's the place where the present reality of the new covenant is lived out. And so this new covenant community of the local church is supposed to be a visible representation and reflection of the universal church. And so we saw that the local church is to exhibit the character of the new covenant community as it's described in the scriptures. So who is the universal church made up of? It's made up of all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, 
all of those who are born again. So who is the local church supposed to be made up of? All of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, all of those who are born again. So only saved people who know the Lord are to be admitted to local church membership because only saved people who know the Lord are admitted to universal church membership. And so this is the reason why we don't admit unsaved people into the membership. Now, that leads us then today to our new material, and that is we want to talk about the sign of entry into the covenant community, which is baptism. And so the first aspect of church life, which the new covenant profoundly impacts, is its initiatory admitting ordinance. Now, under the Old Covenant, to be admitted to and initiated into the Old Covenant, if you were a male, you had to be circumcised. And Genesis 17 makes it very clear that if you weren't circumcised, you were cast out of any hope of having any part in the Abrahamic Covenant or in the life of the Old Covenant community. And in the same way, baptism plays that role under the new covenant. The new covenant knows nothing of unbaptized members. As soon as people got saved, they were immediately baptized. There was no long period of delay between profession of faith in Christ and baptism. And so our memory verse today, then they that gladly received his word were what? Baptized and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And so uh, you see this pattern going, uh, being repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Every time baptism is mentioned, it's mentioned uh, following immediately upon the heels of the profession of faith. And so the Ethiopian eunuch, um, we see Cornelius's household, we see the Philippian jailer, uh, just to pull some off the top of my head, every single time, that you see somebody getting baptized in the book of Acts, when does it occur? Immediately after um, their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So what baptism does is it is the identifying mark of those who have uh, converted uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. And so... Um, not only did our text, well, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to just point out a couple of things. The book of Acts chapter 2. This is, this is really, really important for us to understand as to why we don't baptize babies and why we do not admit them into a local church membership like the Presbyterian churches do and uh, many of the other Reformed churches do. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching his Pentecost Day sermon. He's setting forth the gospel. He's preaching salvation through Christ. And um, verse 37, Now when they heard this, Acts 2.37, they were convicted in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, there's a lot we could say about that verse, but I want you to notice who was supposed to be baptized. 
Answer those who self-consciously repented. He said, repent first and then be baptized. No repentance, no baptism. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And so if someone is not capable of self-consciously repenting, then they're not suitable objects for receiving baptism. Okay, and then it goes on. He says, um, verse 39, For the promises to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the, the, the people to whom this promise extended is believers, uh, pardon me, is, 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 is adults, the children of adults, and to people who are afar off. And the thing that characterizes adults, their children, and the people who are afar off is that each of them and all of them have been effectually called. And if they're incapable of being calling, called, or if they're not the objects of calling, then you don't baptize them. And so the Presbyterians love to quote this verse. They say, for the promise is to you and to your children, therefore you and your children should be baptized. Well, if you're going to use this as a basis for the baptizing of believers' children, then you also have to use it as a basis for baptizing all those who are far off. Furthermore, this passage isn't addressed to believers. It's addressed to unsaved people. Who's he talking to? People who need to repent. People who are unsaved. So it's not even addressing believers and their children. It's addressing unsaved people and their children. And those who are far off. Namely the Gentiles. Okay? So he's saying the Jews and the Jewish children and all the Gentiles. All of them can repent and be baptized if they're the objects of God's effectual call. That is, if they become saved. So in no way does this passage promote infant baptism or the baptism of people just because they're the children of believers. Because number one, believers aren't being addressed here. When do they become believers? Not until two verses later. Notice, it says, verse 39, verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. They weren't yet saved. So he's not even addressing saved people in verse 39. The promises to you and your children, to all that are far off. He's just saying the promise of, of remission of sins is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Okay? If the Lord calls you and you repent and you're baptized, then you can receive remission of sins. And it's not just for the Jews. It's for all classes and categories of people. Be they old, be they young, be they Jewish, or be they Gentile. That's the thrust. So don't ever let anybody use this passage to convince you that uh, the infants of believers ought to be baptized. Because the infants of believers aren't being discussed here. It's the children of unbelievers that are being discussed here. And it is predicated of them that they are called by God and infants are incapable of outward calling because they don't even comprehend the English language, much less inward calling. 
which always attends the outward call, understood. And uh, so, furthermore, infants are incapable of repentance, so they can't meet the other qualification for baptism, and therefore no objects of remission of sins. All right? Any questions about that? Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay. All right. Then it says, <clears throat> verse, 49, verse, verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So who were the objects of baptism? Only those who gladly received his word. Something which infants are incapable of doing. Okay, they can't receive the word. They don't even understand it. And so the objects of baptism were those who did repent. They were those who did believe. They were those who did embrace the gospel message. And they were baptized. And the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. Now notice verse 47. B. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, or it could be translated also those who were being saved. Okay? So those who were being saved were the ones that were added. If you weren't saved, guess what? You weren't added to the church. And so who is the church made up of? It's made up of those who the Lord our God shall call. It's made up of those who repent. It's made up of those who gladly receive his word. It's made up of those who are saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. And it is those people who are baptized and who are added. And them alone. Now, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. We'll notice once again the explicit instructions of our Lord Jesus Christ regarding who is to make up the church. Matthew chapter 28. We'll start out at verse 18. The resurrected Christ has appeared here to his people. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what are you supposed to do with disciples? You're supposed to baptize them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So we have Christ establishing the doctrine of ecclesiology here. And he says you need to go out and you need to make disciples. And what is the disciple? A disciple is someone who has committed himself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He's someone who has sacrificed his will to the will of Christ. He's someone who, in a word, is a convert. And so go out and bring people to conversion, to becoming followers of Christ, and then, he says, baptize them. So who are the proper objects of baptism? Answer, disciples. Only disciples. 
nothing other than disciples. And then what do you do with these disciples? You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then what do you do with them? You congregate them into churches so that you can teach them. As it says in verse 20, to observe all things that I have commanded you. So there's evangelism, there's baptism, and then there's the congregating uh, into an assembly for the purpose of teaching those that have been saved and have been baptized. So what the apostles were doing in Acts chapter 2 is simply carrying out the mandate that Jesus gave in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. So what we see in Acts chapter 2 and what we see in the Great Commission is the explicit command and example on the part of Jesus and the apostles that those who repent, those who are called, those who are discipled, those who believe, those who are saved, they are baptized and they are added to the church and nobody else. And so when you think also about the significance of baptism, it's quite clear who is supposed to receive that ordinance. You've heard me go over these five explanations of, of the significance of baptism over and over again as we've had baptisms, right? Okay, a baptism is someone who's a disciple. There's someone who are, who are in union with Jesus Christ. They're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a declaration of union with God in an adoptive family relationship. Okay, um, they are those who have been cleansed from their sins. He says, um, be baptized, every one of you, with reference to the remission of your sins or because of the remission of your sins. Uh, it is those who uh, have gone through a spiritual regeneration, were buried with him in baptism, like as Christ was raised from the dead, even so you should be raised to newness of life. And so baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6. And then, of course, baptism is a picture of union with the people of God. By one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So when you see that baptism is a declaration you're a disciple, it's a declaration you're in union with God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's a declaration that you've been washed from your sins. It's a declaration that you have been um, regenerated. You've gone through a death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. The old nature has been killed and buried and gotten a new nature. And then when you see that it's a sign of union with the people of God, baptized into the body of Christ, Clearly, those things are only true of Christians, of saved people. And so if that's the significance of the ordinance, then you only apply the ordinance to those who manifest that they have experienced those things. And that's the reason why we don't baptize babies. And so uh, that's the reason why we don't have children, unsaved children of believers in our church membership because they, those things are not yet true of them. They have no reason to believe that. So this ordinance of baptism that has been established as a sign of entrance into the new covenant community predicates then that the only people we apply that sign to and the only people that we bring into the new covenant community are those who genuinely are saved. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts, the ninth chapter. Um, as you're well aware, in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus became saved on the road to Damascus. 
So what do saved people do when they become saved? Well, immediately, they want to go to church. You have someone who claims to be a Christian, has no interest in going to church, mark it down, they're not a Christian. Just mark it down. If you've got somebody who claims to be a Christian, has no interest in going to church, they're not a Christian. Because by one spirit, we're baptized into one body. And as soon as Jesus saves us, he joins us with his people. He gives us a heart for his people. And those who have no interest in church, no desire for church, are those who have no interest in Christ and his work in his people. So notice Acts chapter 9. And in verse 26, this is shortly after Saul of Tarsus has gotten saved. It says um, he got saved on the road to Damascus. He went to Damascus. He preached. They tried to kill him. Verse 24, but their laying in wait was known of Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he had better things to do on Sunday than go to church. It isn't what it says, is it? Verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he assayed, he attempted to join himself to the disciples. He wanted to join the church, wanted to go to church, wanted to be with the people of God, wanted to worship. But they were all afraid of him and believed not he was a disciple. See, they understood the grounds upon which someone came into the church and participated in the church as a member of the church, and that is they had to be a disciple. And they weren't convinced he was a disciple. They didn't think he had a credible profession of faith. Last they knew, he was killing Christians. Now he wants to come be one of us? Yeah, right. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them. Really important phrase. He was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. Now, he, before he wasn't with them, he wasn't part of them, and now he's part of them. And what they had to be convinced of is that he had a credible profession of faith. Now, at this stage, he'd just barely been saved. I mean, he just got back into town and immediately wanted to join church. And... Uh, what did they do? Did they give him some big, long probationary period to make sure he was a real disciple? No, they took him on the basis of his profession of faith. And, uh, you know, he was like baptized before this, right? Remember who baptized him? Annas baptized him earlier in the chapter. Okay. And um, <clears throat> verse 17. And Annas went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, Brother, get that brother. Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and rose and was baptized. So he was saved, he was baptized, he joined the church. You see that pattern over and over and over and over and over. And that's the reason why we don't admit to church membership those who aren't baptized. And that's why we don't admit to the Lord's Supper those who are not baptized. You hear me every Sunday that we have communion saying, if you have received Christ as your Savior and you have been baptized, then you may partake of, 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 the, uh, of the elements, right? 
Um, because if you're not a member of the church and the covenant community, you have no right to partake of the covenant community meal. Because the covenant community meal is for the covenant community. There's, there's no reason to believe that you are in the covenant community if you've not made a public profession of faith in Christ and backed it up by baptism. Because what do you see? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls and they continued steadfastly in what? The breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper, right? So you're saved, you're baptized and admitted to the church and then you partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, some people use this as an argument for closed communion. And they say, well, if you're not a member of a local church, you shouldn't partake of the covenant community meal. And there's strong arguments for that, and I'm sympathetic to those arguments. But I think that the requirement for admission to the covenant community meal is that you be a member of the covenant. And uh, whether you're a member of some other church or a member of this church, uh, the important thing is that you're a member of the universal church. Because what is the covenant community meal? It is a um, fellowshipping uh, in the body and blood of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, the, the, the bread which we break is not the communion of the body of Christ. The cup which we drink is not the communion or the fellowship, the koinonia of the blood of Christ. And... Uh, so he says, you are all one body and one blood. We're all in union with Christ. So I can share the Lord's Supper with anybody who's in union with Christ. Um, and so that's why we practice open communion. Um, nevertheless, um, the goal is not to have a believer who is truly in the universal church, who's also not a faithful, committed member of a particular local church. Uh, if someone's just out there bouncing around from church to church and is not a member of any church, um, uh, they're in church, okay, they're saved, uh, but that certainly is not God's will that they bounce around among the universal church, but that they implant themselves into a particular local church where they can continue in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers in a particular body. And what you see is in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, um, Christians joining themselves to particular bodies of believers and, and sticking there and not just bouncing around. Um, and so um, it says here that, that, uh, that Saul attempted to join himself to them. And uh, there's a very powerful, powerful um, 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 what's the word I want? Um, body of passages, for lack of a better phrase, uh, to teach the importance and necessity of church membership. Um, I have a sermon called uh, The Biblical Basis for Church Membership, in which I set forth all the arguments for um, the importance of being joined to a particular local church and uh, the propriety of that. A lot of people think if they just attend a church for a while, it makes them a member. It doesn't. Uh, membership is based on covenant commitment. And uh, without a covenant, there is no joining together. And therefore, um, there needs to be a self-conscious joining. Uh, we see here that they gladly received his word, were baptized, and they were added. There was a self-conscious act of adding themselves to that particular local body. Now, at that point in time, the universal church and the local church were one and the same. Okay? We're talking Acts 2. But then, as time went on and local churches multiplied, 
then the local church and the universal church were not one. And you had the, local, the universal church, which was one, and then you had a bunch of individual local churches to which people needed to uh, attach themselves. So the point is, is that uh, there has to be a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ so that the local church will reflect the membership of the universal church. Now, we're not going to be perfect in discerning that. Um, the universal church is perfect in that um, God knows who's in it and uh, its membership is pure. Only saved people are in it, right? And we strive to have that in the local church, but occasionally someone will make a false profession of faith on the basis of that profession because we're not God. We can't see in their hearts. We accept them into membership in, in, in time because they're not really saved. They cannot and will not persevere in the faith. They begin to live and act uh, and speak like unsaved people. And that's why you have excommunication. That's why there's some people you put out of the church after having received them into the church is because they're demonstrating themselves to be unsaved people. Now, you don't excommunicate people who are saved. That's to create schism in the body of Christ, and that's evil. But you do excommunicate people who are unsaved and manifest that by their lives because to keep them in the church is corrupting. And you see, that was the whole problem with the covenant community under the old covenant. You wonder, why did Israel have such a hard time? Why were they always going after the idols and going apostate and God would have to bring them back and then they'd go apostate and God would bring them back and finally they made such a mess out of it. He sent them off to Babylon for 70 years. Why did they have such a hard time following the Lord? Well, the answer is, is because they were a mixed community. Some of that community was saved and some of it wasn't. And so you had believers and unbelievers, if you will, unequally yoked together under the old covenant because the only requirement for membership in the old covenant was that you have Jewish blood running in your veins and that you'd been circumcised on the eighth day if you were a male. And if you were a female, didn't even have to have that. Okay, there was no mark of entrance for the females. And so they just had to have Jewish blood in their veins. And as a result, there were times when there was only 7,000 saved people in Israel out of four or five million that made up the nation. And so you can imagine that when you're in a nation of unsaved people, um, what the, the, the morality and the behavior is going to be that would bring God's judgment. And so um, that's why the new covenant is infinitely superior to the old covenant, because the old covenant was a mixed multitude of saved and unsaved. The new covenant is uh, uh, purely made up of those who are saved. And that's why the new covenant church will not go apostate. Did you hear me? That's why the new covenant church will not go apostate like Israel did. Okay. Now there's a lot of new covenant churches that do go apostate. And how do you explain that? Because they admitted unsaved people into the membership. We wanted to be nice. Didn't want to make anybody feel excluded. When people weren't behaving right, we wouldn't exercise church discipline. So we didn't want to offend anybody. Might hurt the church budget. And so as a result, the church filled up with unsaved people, with goats. And what happens? The church goes apostate. We're going to talk about that tonight. From Jude chapter 1 and verse 3. 
He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For certain men are crept in unawares, and godly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Those people were in the church. That's why the church became corrupt. And that's why we have to see what happens in Presbyterian churches. Okay. Is they bring infants into membership. They grow up. Okay. When they get about 12 years old, they put them through what I call process conversion. Process conversion is putting them through confirmation. Okay. Where they go through a confirmation class and they are um, coached into making a profession of faith. And then they are given full membership in the church. And what happens is, is Presbyterian churches are generally made up of saved people in the first generation, about half saved people in the second generation. And by the third generation, the vast majority of people in them are unsaved because they're admitted as unsaved people. And all they have to do is grow up and act respectable. And then they are in the church membership. And as a result, voting on pastors and elders and those kinds of things. And, um, that's why they always go apostate because they, they start out pure, but because of their theology, they wind up admitting a mixed multitude into the membership, which corrupts the membership because it's half sheep and half goats. And ultimately the goats always take over the sheep and the sheep have to go somewhere else and start something else. So that's why you've got a ton of Presbyterian denominations because the saved remnant in these corrupt churches winds up going out and starting anew. And so you have the PCUSA, you have the PC um, Presbyterian Church um, USA, Presbyterian Church of America, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, and it, it goes on. Um, and so um, that's why Baptist churches have largely been able to maintain their integrity is because we don't admit unsaved people to the membership. Now, Baptist churches these days are not holding up those standards and they're becoming as corrupt as the rest. But um, it's amazing uh, because of the doctrine we have of only admitting saved people into the membership that we have not suffered uh, in Baptist denominations the liberalism and the apostasy and the outright wretchedness that the infant baptizing um, denominations have no Baptists are ordaining homosexuals into the ministry, but the Presbyterians are now, not all of them. Okay. That's not a broad brush stroke The PCUSA just this last month ordained their first openly homosexual minister. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom that you displayed in giving us a new covenant community that reflects the new covenant itself where they all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so, Father, we pray that in our church, while unsaved people are welcome to attend, uh, Father, may the church membership be made up only of saved people. Father, keep our church pure in that regard, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.